Armageddon. Now, many use this word as a synonym for the, the final conflict in your relationship, in your job, financially, in the world's economy, and that's okay to do. In Revelation, when Armageddon is used, my question to you this evening is, what does it mean? It's kind of strange that so many wild stories and, and, and vain speculations about the battle of Armageddon are written about today. Yet the, the, word, the word Armageddon is really only found once in Scripture. Revelation chapter 16, if you'll turn there, Revelation chapter 16. The word Armageddon is mentioned once here in the Bible. Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, describe the sixth angel pouring out the sixth bowl of God's wrath. And the kings of the east and demons gathered together to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And in verse 16 it says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, from this one mention, with, with all that's written about in the, in the world, about some future battle between Jesus and Satan, uh, uh, some future battle with tanks and guns and bombs and helicopters and, and jets, and well, you'd think there was a whole chapter on Armageddon in the Bible. With all that's written today in secular literature, but it's not. This is the only place right here in Revelation 16. It's the only place it's mentioned. We have the luxury, though, of being able to examine all that we want to know about a subject. When historian John Keegan, he wrote his famous The Face of Battle, he looked at various major battles from the eyes of those who fought them. And we're going to do the same thing today. We're going to look at this battle of Armageddon from the eyes of those who fight, fought, or will fight the battle. We'll tell the story of the first century battle. We'll look at the historical battles of Armageddon. And then the last battle we'll look at is the continued battle of Armageddon. In Revelation, Armageddon stands symbolically for the battleground where Christ overcomes Satan. But to say this is a literal battle when Jesus will come back and take arms up against the beast and the dragon, well, that grossly misinterprets the life of Christ. It, it, mostly, it grossly misinterprets the, His teachings. It, 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 it just flies in the face of His death, His burial, and his resurrection that showed that he's already won. He doesn't need to physically come back and take up arms and, 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 and shoot a, a 50 caliber machine gun into the enemy. The kingdom of Christ will never be advanced by physical warfare. Let me say that again. The kingdom of Christ will never be advanced by physical warfare. Those who have tried have not represented the true church of God. And many have tried. But they were 
engaged in greed. They were engaged in ignorance. They were engaged in pride. Or or all of those put together. Jesus said in John chapter 18 verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from here. That makes it pretty plain. The true child of God does not take up arms to further the cause of Christ. The sword used by God's people is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God, that's our sword that we take up. Jesus will not be in a battle at a literal Megiddo. That's the shortened form of Armageddon. Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo or hill of Megiddo. We must put the battle of Armageddon into its context of its time. What was John writing about? What was Jesus telling John to write about here? Imagine yourself a Christian in the latter part of the first century, just like today. You may have been raised in the church. This is the latter part of the first century. So your mama and daddy, they, in, the, in, the, in the earlier part of the first century, in the, in the 40s and in the 50s of the first century, they have, been, they have become Christians. And you were raised in the church. Maybe you would have become a Christian here in this latter part of the first century. You may have known Paul. You may have heard Apollos or sat at the feet of Peter. You are a first century Christian. And you're scared. You're scared. Because you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're being killed. You're losing your homes. You're losing your businesses for refusing to renounce Jesus. It's interesting that Christians were called atheists then. It's kind of funny to think about, isn't it? Christians were called atheists. They were called atheists by the Romans for refusing to worship worship Caesar. Christians were viewed as unpatriotic for their refusal to renounce Jesus Christ. They were under attack. They were fighting a battle, not of swords, not of bombs, not of bullets or chariots, but one of of hearts and souls and, and of mind and of strength. Not only did they have the pressure of society to conform to, the evil seeped into the church and it was all around them because it was all in the world. And we can see that when, when John writes to the seven churches in Asia and he tells them what to watch out for and the evils that would befall them. At any moment, it seemed, the church in the first century could implode or explode, as in Laodicea or Sardis, and the battle would be lost. These first century Christians also saw their religion seemingly being crushed by a false religion and a civil power. So no doubt they they would ask, is there any hope? No doubt they would get tired. No doubt they would become complacent. No doubt they would be looking elsewhere for comfort and for guidance. We should always approach Revelation in the same manner that we do the other books of the Bible like Galatians or Romans. We must first see how it was written and applied to the people of that day. 
then we can glean the principles and commands and examples that we can live by. Remember, Revelation was written by John to encourage the Christians then and us today. The whole push of Revelation is to assure the saints then and today that there's going to be victory. To keep the faith. God wins. Do not yield to false worship. Jesus gives a blessing in Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 to those who watch and remain undefiled, he says. For those Christians living during these dark times, the battle ended, Armageddon ended, when the Roman Empire fell and emperor worship ceased. The beast and false prophet, Revelation 19 verses 20 through 21 were taken away. So Armageddon is not some future literal battle in a literal place, but a symbol of a battle. A prediction, prophecy, which was fulfilled at Rome's destruction. We must remember that Revelation is written in a lot of symbolic language. There are some literal portions, but it It cannot be taken literally throughout the book because all our interpretations must be consistent with the whole of the rest of the Bible. We cannot press the details of of each and every symbol. What we say about Armageddon must agree with the rest of Revelation. It must agree with the rest of the New Testament. It must agree with the rest of Scripture. Revelation is a story told and and retold through various points of view. Some say there are four references to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation. Some say there's three references to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation. Some say two. William Hendrickson, who wrote the famous commentary, and it's in our library, uh, More Than Conquerors, he says the battle is described in our passage of Revelation 16 and Revelation Chapter 11, verse 7, it's also described in Revelation 19, verse 11, and it's described in chapter 20, verse 7. Many say this story is retold from the seven seals. It's also retold in the seven trumpets. It's also retold in the seven bowls. Brother Robert Harkrider writes this, For the true meaning of Revelation, one must seek to grasp the visions or series of visions as a whole, and we must understand difficult passages in the light of clearer passages. It's true. In chapter 12, verses, in chapter 12 through chapter 14 of Revelation, God identifies the, the spiritual battlefield, He identifies the spiritual reasons. For the battle, he identifies the enemy. He identifies the the victors. And he loads those who have lost into the winepress of God's wrath. Chapter 15 is the prelude to the wrath of God being poured out uh, out of the seven bowls upon the earth. And in chapter 16... The seven bowls are poured out by seven angels. The bowls are the answered prayer of the persecuted saints. The the saints in in earlier passages cried out, How long, O Lord? Armageddon 
where the forces of God are gathered for the great spiritual battle where Rome and paganism are defeated on the mountain of Megiddo. Now, literally, there is no mountain at Megiddo. Armageddon literally means, as I've said, mountain or hill of Megiddo, but there is no mountain on this this vast plain. But there are hills. Armageddon is mentioned only once, but Megiddo is mentioned quite a few times in the Bible, in in history. I've got on the screen Joshua chapter 17, verse 11. It mentions a a, a partial description of Megiddo. And Joshua 17 is a continuation of Joshua chapter 13, where the division of land between uh, the 12 conquering tribes of Israel in, in Cana occurs. It says the tribe of Manasseh, in chapter 17, verse 16, had Beth Shan and its towns, Eblem and its towns, the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Tanakh and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. Not mountainous, but hilly. Think, think Middle Tennessee without the trees and a lot of the grass. Okay? From Mount Tabor to Megiddo, there's a vast, flat plain in the valley of Jezreel. If you can look there where where it says Jordan, then you can find Jerusalem there. And I'm I'm dialing it in a little bit more where we see uh, Megiddo, where the red balloon is. From Mount Tabor to Mount Megiddo, there is a, a vast, flat plain in the valley of Jezreel where... Napoleon, in 1799, he fought the Turkish army on the plains of Megiddo. He said, he said, how marvelous a place to maneuver this was. He said that all the armies of the world could fit upon this plain. And the plain certainly is, is big. The plain of Megiddo is part of the plain of Ezderon. And this fat piece of battlefield is 14 miles from north to south. And it's 9 miles from, from east to west. There have been many battles fought here because of its location, because of its maneuverability. The first recorded uh, Bible battle outside, excuse me, the first recorded historical battle outside the Bible was in the 15th century B.C. when Egypt defeated a Canaanite coalition here at, here at Megiddo. Again, 1799, Napoleon fought the Turks here. In uh, 1918, the Allied troops fought the Axis Ottomans here, or the Turkish Ottomans here. But the scripture has many uh, references uh, to battles fought in this place as well. And that's the reason I believe Armageddon is mentioned in Revelation. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 verse 4. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now when Armageddon was mentioned in Revelation, it meant something to those who read the prophecy of Revelation. It meant something to them. God's Word increases faith, as we said this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse verse 17. What could the Old Testament examples of battles in this Jezreel Valley tell those of the first century anything about what was going to happen to them? How could they impart 
what those saints needed. How could these, these descriptions of battles in the Old Testament impart what these saints really, really needed? And, and that was hope. They needed hope. In Judges 4 and 5, the Israelites were not doing what, what God wanted and driving out the Canaanites from the land. So for 20 years, the Canaanite king Jabin, he worried the Israelites around this area here between Mount Tabor and, and, and Megiddo, about nine, ten miles across right there. For 20 years, Jabin, the Canaanite king, he worried Israel to death. And Jabin put the Canaanite chief Sisera in charge of, of the Canaanite forces. At that time, Israel was governed by, by judges, and one of, the, one of the greatest judges of all of Israel was Deborah. Everyone came to Deborah for advice, and she was a prophetess as well. And, and every, everyone came for her to, to judge them. They came from far and wide. And she sent for Barak. He was of the tribe of Naphtali to draw the Canaanite general Sisera in, into battle. She, he wanted her, she wanted him to go to Mount Tabor here and draw Sisera into battle. Through Deborah, God laid out to Barak a a brilliant plan. In Judges chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now, the Kishon River was was very swampy at one end of this Jezreel Valley. And Sisera's nearly 1,000 chariots would not have been able to maneuver. They would not have been able to deploy. They would have bogged down in this swampy area near the river. And Barak said, he told Deborah, he said, I'll, I'll go, I'll go do this, but I want you to come with me. I'm not going to go unless you come with me. That's how much confidence he had in, in Deborah. She said that she would go, but the, the victory wouldn't be counted to Barak. It would be counted to, to another woman. According to Chim Herzog's book, he used to be the, the prime minister of, of Israel. He wrote a book called Battles of the Bible. He said the Canaanites were a better army than the Israelite army. But Sisera's forces, they were, they were beaten. Here at Mount Tabor, they were, they were routed. And in poetic, figurative language, Deborah sings about his defeat. In Judges chapter 5, verse 19, she sings, By the waters of Megiddo, I destroyed him. A beaten Sisera, he tries to run and hide among those friendly to both sides. And and a woman named Jael, when he tried to hide in her tent, she, she covered him with a blanket, if you remember that story. And she drove a tent peg through his head. And... uh, that was the end of Sisera. That was the end of the Canaanite army. The victory did go to the hand of a woman, as was, as was predicted by, by Deborah. What I love about this story is its New Testament connection, such as Megiddo, but, but also Barak, who's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, as one of those who had great faith. Barak had great faith. Is this what they were being told? Is this what those in the first century who were oppressed by Rome being told about Armageddon? You're weary. You're oppressed. But have faith. You'll conquer. 
going to be okay. Is this principle being taught to us today by the battle of Armageddon? Forty years after Deborah and Barak led the defeat of the Canaanites, the Midianites, they rose up against Israel. And Gideon in Judges chapters 6 and 7 led a commando force of 300 into battle against the thousands of Midianites and defeated the Midianites in the valley of Jezreel right there in, in, in front of, of, of Megiddo. Gideon too is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the same verse with, with Barak. Did our first century brothers and sisters, do we, learn that the seemingly small and the seemingly weak are strong when God's on their side. These are victories, but what do we learn from defeats? We can learn from our defeats, can't we? We can learn from our mistakes. We should. In 1 Samuel 31 verse 8, Saul fought the Philistines all over the Jezreel Valley. And the the vast battlefield, he tried to make a last stand. Uh, I've circled there on Mount Gilboa. But he was killed. He had his head chopped off and his body was fastened to the wall of Bethshan. That's how he died. 1 Samuel chapter 31 verse 10. Would you remember now, Saul, as a lot of our people who've been studying in, in the Bible Bowl practice, Saul had displeased God. He was, he, was, uh, he was not in God's favor. God had chosen another king, hadn't he? He had chosen David to be the king. This, is this a warning? Was this an Armageddon warning for them? Obey me. Keep the faith. Is it a warning to us today? The wicked Judean king Ahaza, he was shot on the road to Beth Hagen right in front of Megiddo. In fact, he went to Megiddo to die. He was a bad king. He was a very bad king. In contrast, good king Josiah, 2 Kings 23 verses 29 through 30, he was killed by Pharaoh Necho when Josiah led the army against the Egyptians at Megiddo. Josiah, unlike Ahaza, died as boldly as he lived. Josiah, he had restored the worship of God and brought down the false idols before he died. He was, he was a good man. He was a good king. He was a hero. And yet he died here too. One king died a hero. One, one king died a villain. There are only two sides as we talked about this morning. There's God's side and there's the other side. With those in the first century facing persecution, facing their own Armageddon to be faithful. Were we told, are they being told to be heroes? Are they told to be faithful here? Are we being told to be heroes? Are we being told to be faithful? Is that what the Armageddon really means? You cannot find Armageddon on a map. This battle is between right and wrong. And we learn that right wins. 
Hendrickson writes that Armageddon is a symbol of every battle where the need is greatest and the believers are oppressed. Here's our story. We've looked at the first century story. We've looked at the story of our fathers and mothers in the Old Testament. Let's look at our story just a moment. We in the 21st century, we are bombarded by sex and drugs and all types of evil. We live in a narcissistic society. We live in a society full of wars and rumors of wars. We live in a place that puts more importance on things than it does people. We in America fill our time with filler. Religion has become a pastime, not a passion. Many call themselves Christians, but they're more like spoiled children. Self-centered, demanding attention. Many are ashamed of Christ. They're embarrassed to be a Christian. They are hearing without hearing, seeing without sight. Jesus said in Mark Chapter 8, verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with, his holy, with the holy angels. Hugh Hewitt, in his book, The Embarrassed Believer, says, That's Jesus talking. He is direct. He is speaking to the embarrassed believer, cowed and hiding. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote to the Romans. And in Paul's day, there was a genuine risk to believe. Now the embarrassed believer has already begun to put some distance between Christ's words cited above and himself, between Paul and himself. The embarrassed believer is happy to have nearly 2,000 years of possible ambiguity to put between Scripture and today. Nowhere does the church appear less confident than in the United States. The church's failure to contend for the mind and soul and do for publicly, do for so publicly with a strong, defensible claim for truth opens up a gap in the lives of millions. The embarrassed believer is silent, and silence is a condition that does not last long in modern America. The quiet has been displaced by a cacophony of voices, each one selling a different non-Christian meaning. This gap is being exploited as gaps often are by enemies on the battlefield. Our gaps are being exploited and the enemy's coming through and what are you going to do about it? That's our Armageddon. What can we do? What can we do? I want to make a bold statement. I can back it up. We are just as persecuted as the first century Christians were persecuted, just in different ways. We are just as persecuted, just differently. Apathy stands on our neck. Guilt chokes our lives. 
selfishness grabs our still beating heart and shows it to us before our spirit dies. Our sin is ever before us. What can we do? Like I said, in Revelation 16, before the battle, chapters 12 through 15, they set up the winners and the losers. Do you want to know, you want to see what a winner looks like? Turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Show you what a, a winner looks like in, in, in Armageddon. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Winners overcame and winners still continue to overcome. Winners beat the devil. Winners overcame and still overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony and they did not love their lives to death. Let me read it again. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony and they did not love their lives to death. That's a winner. That's a winner. One comes in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ when they get into Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. The only way into Christ is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. The Word of God leads us to this victory. Now all that's left is for you to not love your lives to the death. That's all that's left. What does that mean? Notice these comments on those who did not love their lives to death. From Robert Harkrider, their testimony bore witness to their total commitment and love of the Lord. They did not cherish life even though they faced martyrdom. They gave up everything to serve Christ, but they gained far more than they lost. The worldly-minded will compromise in the name of common sense in an attempt to avoid what they call fanaticism. Why would anybody choose persecution over the pleasures of this world? Only those who understand the words of Jesus, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hated his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal, John 12, 25. The authentic follower of Christ has his values and priorities clearly in view. Brother Dugan, Mark Dugan, notice the text does not say that Christians loved martyrdom. It says they loved not their lives. This is not a discussion of how they viewed death, but rather how they viewed their lives. If their life is committed to God, then the issue of death is already taken care of. If I'm right with God, then there is nothing to fear concerning death. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, Matthew 16, 25. Consider the truth that great commitment brings great confidence. At times, Christians lack confidence in their salvation in the future or concerning death, and often such a lack of confidence is due to half-hearted commitment. People ask me, how can you be so sure that you're going to heaven? You say you're going to heaven, Chad. How can you be sure about it? I'm committed. That's why I can say it. How about you? Can you say that with confidence? If Jesus Christ came back right now, would you go to heaven? I want you to say it. I want you to be able to say it.
Such a lack of confidence is due to half-hearted commitment. Is that your battle? Is that your Armageddon, your half-hearted commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ? Is that your Armageddon? I wrote in the bulletin. You know, somebody asked me this question. People have asked me about this bulletin article. Somebody asked me this question. What's the problem with our soul sowers group? I didn't have an answer. I don't know. I, I tend to blame myself a lot of times. I started to do some digging. Started to do some research. Here's what I found. This is from Dr. Bob Cox. He's the dean of the Department of Education at the University of Texas at Tyler. He says that churches are like most institutions or movements in that they generally digress through three stages. He says they begin as risk takers, then develop into caretakers, and finally become undertakers. The early days are characterized by a willingness to try anything that might advance the cause. After a season of success, there's a tendency to protect the fruit of earlier victories. This cautious mode leads toward decline and eventual death. It happens in businesses and churches. Here's why. Because growth requires a certain level of risk. Why do programs fail? He he writes it. Why... Why is, why is the soul sowers failing? Why is it, church, why is it for the years that I've been here, I've started this program every year and it's failed every year? Why? Well, he offers some suggestions here. Could be perception. The problem and solution they didn't resonate with the organization. Maybe that's my fault. Maybe I didn't promote it good enough and it didn't resonate with you guys. Maybe that's it. Top management could be the problem. Our elders program did not have support of top management. Maybe that's the problem. How about this? Top management is a different problem. The program only had support from the top management and it didn't trickle down to the rest of us. Maybe that's it. Reality. Here's here's another. The program didn't address real problems facing the organization. I don't think that's it. The lost are a real problem. Don't you agree? Fear. Trust is not developed in its leaders, so they're not followed. Maybe that's it. Maybe you're scared to follow the leaders that we have. How about this? Resources, time, money, and our people are not available at the right place at the right time. Maybe that's it. Maybe it was resources. How about resistance? Had a lot of resistance. Critiques, suggestions by adversary groups are not addressed. Maybe that maybe I didn't address those in a timely fashion. Here's what I think it is. Sustainability. After initial momentum, the program never becomes normalized in the organization. Continued energy must be pumped into the program. Communication, advertising must continue to keep it before the organization's members. That's the problem. There's no sustainability. Where did we go wrong? There. Let's fix it. No more excuses. Let's feed the funnel. Let's get names, folks. That's where it's fallen. We don't have any names. If we don't have any names, we can't send them out to folks. We need names of people. That's just one battle that we're fighting. 
That's just one Armageddon that we're involved in here at Fountainhead. There's lots more. Just talk to an elder sometime. They'll tell you a couple. They may leave out the names to protect the innocent. There's lots of Armageddons. Maybe you're going through one too. Those who overcome are true believers, not bystanders. Which one are you? True believer or a bystander? True believers attend church services on a regular basis. It's unusual for them not to be there. Bystanders attend either occasionally, infrequently, or not at all. Believers teach their children and others' children the essentials of faith. Bystanders, they leave that to somebody else. True believers talk to others about Jesus Christ, even though they find it unpleasant. Bystanders are theoretically willing to do so if approached, but they've never been approached. Believers read Scripture, though it takes work, takes effort to read Scripture. Bystanders, they'll get around to it sometime. No job is beneath a believer. No job is beneath a believer. Bystanders, they don't want many jobs, but they're sacrificing themselves for a leadership position if they're, if they're pushed into it. Believers honor those who lead the congregation. Bystanders, when they notice church leaders at all, the only thing they're consistent in is their willingness to critique them. Believers savor and seek more and more teaching about God. Bystanders have what they need and they don't want to be bothered with any more. Regardless of how much sin offers, regardless of how much sin promises, regardless of how much sin fulfills your need for the moment, it will always bring death. Always. We must understand this to escape God's wrath and win our own Armageddon. If in our lives, hear me now, if in our lives... We win in business, we win in sports, we win in family, and we climb the social ladder, but we fail in this Armageddon for our soul. We are losers, not winners. We are villains, not heroes. I want you to be a hero. I want you to be brave. I want you to fight. You believe this is something worth fighting for, don't you? Armageddon is not some future battle fought with helicopters and guns and bows and arrows. It's already been fought. But there are Armageddons going all over. Even here in this room. Battles between good and evil. Take control of the battle for your soul. Be brave. Be strong. Be a hero. You've already won. 
Have faith. If you need to become a Christian or you need to be a better Christian, I want you to come right now. I want you to fight back. As together we stand and sing.